following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. 1 Thessalonians 5. Of course, we've been working our way through uh, Ezra, and uh, last Sunday we finished up the, the first return from captivity, so that was a good time for us to uh, take a break from Ezra and, and to focus today on our theme for 2022, love one another. And uh, so we've talked about the fact, uh, beginning on the first Sunday of the year, about the fact that the night before Jesus was crucified, in the upper room, he said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we talked earlier in the year about the fact that Jesus here is addressing his disciples. And so his concern here is about relationships among God's people. For us, that would be in the church. So this year, uh, we are focusing on the fact of how the church can manifest such outstanding love among us that we stand out to the world as disciples of Jesus. If an unbeliever walks into our church and spends time with us, they should say, wow, something is different here. These people know Jesus. And this morning, I want to get really practical in developing this theme. And specifically, I want to talk about the fact that biblical love, loving each other, does not always look the same. No, instead, we have to tailor our love to the need of the moment. And so my title today is The Many Faces of Love. And I want to prove it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, which says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Uh, this verse, and some important context for this verse, is the fact that, that Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica after only a few weeks of ministry. You might know the story that, that Paul went there, started working to, to start the church, and, uh, and very quickly he was forced to leave town because of persecution. So he didn't have much time to disciple these believers, train these believers. So here at the end of 1 Thessalonians, uh, verses 12 through 22, he sounds a lot like Sounds a lot like dad when you're getting ready to go on your first road trip. You know, so you're getting in the car and, you know, dad says, you know, don't run out of gas. Check the oil. Don't pick up strangers. Don't stay out late. And he just rat starts rattling off all these, you know, little pieces of advice. And, and on and on it goes. And our text um, has a similar a list of, of just simple, practical app challenges with broad application. They extend through verse 12 through verse 22. And, um, and they're all things that we know, right? Like when dad starts telling you all this stuff, you sit there and you're, you know, you're a snotty teenager and you're like, dad, I know, I know, I know. But you forget. And that's why he keeps telling you. And in a similar way, these verses give us a number of pieces of advice or, or, or demands of the Lord that, that we sometimes forget and so we need to remember. So in verse 14, dad here, or Paul, uses four commands, admonish, encourage, help, and be patient to remind us of the simple truth 
that love does not always look the same. We must thoughtfully tailor our love to the need of the situation. And we're going to spend most of our time today uh, talking about the four commands that Paul gives. Uh, But before we get there, we need to frame it all with with a couple of important uh, just points from this introductory statement, we urge you, brethren, all right? So that's how he begins. And the first point we need to see there is that these commands are for all Christians. Now, I bring this up because we may want to believe, you might want to read verse 14 and think that is a great verse for the pastors. Or that's a great verse for the really you know, spiritual, mature people in the church, but I cannot do at least one of these four things. And, and you may not believe you could ever do these things. You, you could never. I mean, how, me admonish the unruly? I, I could never do that. Or support the weak? I mean, I'd just tell them to toughen up. You know, I, I don't know how to be kind and caring. But, but notice that every command in verses 12 through 22 is addressed to the entire church. So it's not, you know, he says in verse 12, he says, uh, appreciate those who diligently labor. That's for the church. Verse 15, do not repay one another with evil. That's for everyone. Verse 16, rejoice, pray, give thanks, do not quench the spirit. All these commands are addressed to every Christian. And verse 14 begins, we urge you, brethren, not just pastors. So if you are saved, this verse is for you. Now, I'll admit that there might be times that you come a spiritual need in the heart of another person that you are not equipped to fully address yourself. So, so there's times where you might, might need to get help to, to fully uh, do what this verse says. But remember what we talked about back in January, that, that Romans 12.5 says that we are members one of another. We are members of each other. We belong to each other in the church. So you are responsible for the spiritual care of the people in this room. All of us bear a responsibility to bear each other's burdens and to help each other onto Christ. So all of us, if we know Christ, are responsible to obey this verse. The second thing I want us to see from that statement is that these commands are urgent. Now it's notable that of all the challenges Paul gives in verses 12 through 22, verses 12 and 14 are the only ones that include a preface. So Verse 12 begins, but we request of you. And then verse 14 begins with a stronger statement, we urge you. So so none of the other challenges include that sort of of statement, which tells us that that these are especially urgent commands. And folks, that's because our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are engaged in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, verse 10, it says that that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but but instead we wrestle against the spiritual forces of wickedness that that are working against us. So as you look around this room, or as you think about brothers and sisters in Christ who are not here today, we are all engaged in spiritual war. And therefore, we need to support each other. The enemy is strong, both out there and also in our hearts. So so these four commands matter for you. And every one of us should be zealous to do a good job of of supporting each other 
as we struggle for godliness and as we fight against the flesh. And again, Paul's going to emphasize that, that doing that means that we must tailor our love to the needs of each situation. So, so with that said, let's jump into these four commands. And so the first command that, that God gives here is that we must admonish the unruly. Now, with all these, we're going to keep a pretty simple outline. So first of all, we need to ask, well, who are the unruly? And it's interesting to note that, that the, un, the word here that's translated unruly, it's the Greek word ataktos. So the root taktos means orderly. And the prefix a means no. Kind of like when you hear the word atheism, atheism is a combination of theism meaning God and a meaning no. So, so this word literally means no order. And it was originally used of a soldier who is out of step or, or is not in line with the other men in the army. And so he's causing confusion. He's causing disarray because he's not obeying the orders of, of his general. And slowly this term came to describe any disorderly conduct, anyone who is out of line with God's word. So now, now I want to mention here too that, that you might have a translation that instead of having or, um, disorderly or unruly, instead has idle or, or lazy. And the, and the reason for that people do that is, is not because the word here actually means idle or lazy. Instead, uh, what, what they're doing there is that most people, well, well, First and Second Thessalonians both talk about the fact that there was a group of people there in the Thessalonian church that, that had stopped working and they were living off the kindness of other people in the church. And, and Paul confronts them very strongly uh, for their laziness and for not providing for their own needs. And so, and so a lot of people assume that when Paul gives this command, he is especially thinking about these people who are not working. So that's why they translate it as idle. And, and of course, that might be what Paul has in mind. Uh, but, but he uses the more general term because he is stating a general principle. That, that any professing Christian who is not walking in obedience to God's will needs to be admonished. So, so this command is concerns people who are walking in disobedience to God. They're out of step with his commands. And based on the contrast, I think we should add, with the next two terms, the faint-hearted and the weak, we must add that it's not that these guys are just foolishly doing what's wrong. No, these people know the truth, and they are willfully disobeying it. So it's not that they're foolish, you know, or that they're really trying to honor God, but they just keep falling on their face. No, these are people who know what is right, and by God's grace, they could choose to do what's right. But they willfully go in a different direction. And folks, the Bible is clear that that is a very dangerous place to be. You know, anytime I just know what God says, and I say, no, I'm not doing that. That is a dangerous place. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 say that take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another, day after day, as long as it is still called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so those verses warn that when a Christian willfully rejects God's authority, 
that his heart begins to grow hard against God's truth. And we grow less responsive to the work of the Spirit and the Scriptures. And when you consistently reject what God has said, whether you ever say it out loud, you begin to functionally believe that God is not there and God will never hold me accountable. So folks, willful disobedience to God's word is is always very dangerous. And as a result, the question is, well, what do we need to do for this individual? And, uh, And Paul says that the unruly need to be admonished. Now, now, in other words, they need to be confronted, and they need to be told that they are disobeying God and that he is not pleased with their conduct. So, so Paul says, if someone is willfully disobeying God's will, we need to take an aggressive approach. We need to, to tell them that they are sinning, that they are disobeying him. So, so you can't just let it go. You know, kind of pretend like it's not happening you know, put your, eye, your hands over your face. I, I, don't hear, I don't see that. I don't hear that. Those types of things. No. Love demands that when I see willful disobedience, I confront it. And if people don't respond, the Bible teaches that we might need to up the ante. In fact, you know, Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians about the fact that some of these people in the church, I mean, even though God is clear that we are to provide for our family, they refuse to get jobs. And so a turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, and notice the command that he gives in verse 6. He says, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now folks, every command that God gives is authoritative, right? So, but he adds that introduction, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus, to, to drive home the fact that this is hard, but it is very important that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, that's the same word as our text, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. So, so if someone refuses to respond to confrontation, he says that you are to withdraw fellowship with that person. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish. Again, same word, admonish him as a brother. Now, now what Paul is saying in those verses, all right, what we call today church discipline is something that most people in our society don't want to stomach. I mean, they're going to say if you confront people, if you get involved in their lives, if you hold them to God's word, that that's intrusive. That's judgmental. You know, our society tells us that, that loving someone means that, that, you, that you embrace whatever they do, whatever they say. It means unqualified acceptance. But what the Bible says, that if a brother or sister in Christ is tiptoeing on the precipice of hell, then love demands that I go after them with the truth of God and call them to repentance. Now Jude, um, I don't know if we can advance it here a couple slides, uh, Jude 22 and 23 uh, say, uh, say, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. 
But think about that second statement there. It says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, folks, if someone is about to fall into a blazing fire, you don't give them space. And you don't worry about their comfort. You grab them. You rescue them from the fire. Now, of course, I want to be clear here with all this, that that we have to bathe everything we do as Christians in love and humility. So so if I am confronting with an arrogant tone or without love, that's not a good thing. Of course, the final command in our text is be patient with everyone. So so we should never be harsh. We we should never be unloving in, in how we do this. Because the goal is always restoration. Right? I mean, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says at the end, admonish him as a brother. We we want them to come to Christ. We we want to restore healthy, godly fellowship. So so I'll add this too, that if you are tempted to admonish someone out of frustration, you're irritating me, or embarrassment, you're making me look bad, or uh, out of anger, then you need to get your heart right before you go and admonish the unruly. But with that said, urgent threats demand an urgent response. So so might be someone that's here today, and you are yourself unruly. You know that you are walking in disobedience to God's word, and, and frankly, you don't care. You're happy with where you are in your sin. And if that's where you are, I would urge you today, do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not be hardened. And and, and no, confess it to the Lord. Ask him to help you change. But but do not go on willfully sinning against the Lord because the scriptures warn that that your heart will be hardened and you will drift further and further from Christ. So confess it, change, ask God for help. You know, if you're so deep, you're deep in some habit or, or, or sin has just wrapped around your heart and you don't know how you can ever get out, then, then get help. Talk to us and let us help you change, but do not stay in an unruly life. And, and maybe you're sitting there today and, and you know of a Christian who has unruliness in your heart, in their hearts. And, and I would urge you to love them enough to confront their sin. You know, it's so easy, again, to think, oh, I really don't want to get in the middle of this. So I'm going to pretend like I don't know what's happening. And, and folks, love demands that we not turn a blind eye, make excuses. I'm so busy, I don't have time to get in the middle of this. Or whatever it might be, that, that instead we go after it. If you don't know what to say, or you're not equipped to handle it, bring along someone who is. But love your brother enough to give him what he needs to hear. So, so, so Paul, first of all, tells us to admonish the unruly. And then secondly, he commands us, if we can advance the next slide, to encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Now, again, uh, so let's talk about what this is. Uh, who, who are these people? Well, of course, they're faint-hearted. And other translations say this person is discouraged or disheartened. Some translations might even say that this person is timid. And and the Greek term that's translated here, uh, faint-hearted, is the word oligopsikos. And and interestingly, uh, the the antonym to that term, the 
opposite term, megalopsikos, was, was a word that Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, used to describe what he pictured as the ideal man. So the ideal man in the Greek way of thinking is strong, he's confident, he's self-sufficient, he doesn't need anything from anyone. The Greeks despised any sort of weakness. But the reality is, is that in a fallen world, we all get discouraged, and we all get disheartened at times. We all get faint. And it doesn't mean that you're a wimp, right? So, I mean, think of the Thessalonians. Many of the people that were members of this church were, were probably people who were slaves. You know, some of them lived in, in, with families or employers that, that put constant pressure on their faith. I mean, they were constantly being pushed away from the Lord and, and pressured for their beliefs. And that wears on anyone, right? Yeah, and it's not just things like that. I mean, we, we could go on and on about ways that we get discouraged. You know, many Christians, there's probably some of you in this room, you fight the same sin year after year after year. And you hate your sin, but, but you keep struggling. And when you fall, it is terribly discouraging. And you begin to believe, well, what's the use trying? I know I'm going to fall again anyway. And so you quit. Or sometimes you, you do the right thing. And instead of God making your life easier, your life gets harder. And, and so you begin to think, man, what's the use? Is Christ worth it? I'm done. I'm done making sacrifices. And sometimes we get discouraged in ministry. You share the gospel. You pour your life into someone. You invest hours in the ministries of the church. And, and then people don't respond. Or maybe they respond with anger. Like, get out of my life. Leave me alone. And all you're trying to do is love them. And you're tempted to quit. And you're tempted to think, no one will ever hurt me like that again. So I'm shutting down, and I'm backing away. So faint-heartedness is a common threat for anyone who is striving to honor the Lord. So what do the faint-hearted need? Well, Paul says, well, God commands us to encourage them. Now, now I want to emphasize here that encouragement is a whole lot more than just cheering someone up. Now, it's good that we need laughter and we need to be, you know, cheered up at times. But, but you know, we live in such a trite society that, that, that very often our only solutions to discouragement or faint-heartedness is to get distracted, you know, get drunk, or, or go do something fun so you don't think about your problems. You know, or, or we just, you know, tell a, a little joke or give a pep talk and everything's going to be okay, as if we have any confidence that it actually is so. And certainly, a good joke, a pep talk, all those things have their place. But, but real biblical encouragement usually demands something a whole lot more substantive than what the world is offering. Now, sometimes, the faint-hearted need you to walk with them through grief and just continually reassure them that God is good, God is faithful, and he will take care of you. You know, they need scripture and truth and, and real biblical love. But, but regardless, the, the main issue I want to emphasize is that the faint-hearted need a very different approach from the unruly. So, so the unruly, they need someone to you know, sometimes get in their face, grab them by the collar, and say, shape up. But the faint-hearted is fragile. And a strong admonishment, instead of encouraging him and helping him, might break him. 
Now, for example, it says in Isaiah 42, uh, verse 3, if we could advance the slide, it says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Yeah, that's a great verse, because if you think about the fact that a strong breeze can turn a campfire into a wildfire, right? A strong breeze uh, makes it bigger and stronger and healthier. But but the same strong breeze can kill a a wick that is almost burned out. And and so we need to recognize as we do ministry that depending depending on the situation, the same word for some people can bring life and for other people bring death because of the need of the situation. So you're right wondering, well, well, how do I know the difference? Well, fundamentally, you need to ask questions. Listen to people's answers. Observe body language and behavior long enough to discern, is this person I'm trying to serve, is this person unruly, or is he faint-hearted? And so it's so important, if we are going to serve each other well, that we take the time to listen and discern what is really going on in this person's heart. And what is the need of the moment? Now, I want to emphasize as well that this is very important for parenting. Now, now I want to emphasize, you know, first of all here, that that it is very true that, 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 that you need as a parent to have objective standards in your home and you need to have consistent consequences. Now, so uh, Proverbs uh, 22, verse 15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So, children are all unruly at the heart, because they're sinners. Your child, especially when they're young, is rarely just faint-hearted. They they need to be disciplined, and they need the unruliness in their heart to be removed. But, But at the same time, we also need to recognize that parenting is not a wooden formula. Where where you just put in, you crunch, you know, you put in the same numbers, and boom, you always get the same result at the end. Now, it's important that you listen, that you observe, that you discern what is happening in your child's heart, and that you minister to them according to the need of the moment. And it's especially so as they get older, that, that as they grow and mature, as their hearts develop and become more complex, that we are aware of the situation. And when you see discouragement, whether it's in the heart of your child or, or whether it be in, in any fellow believer, then Paul says you need to tailor your love to the need of the moment. So, so if you come across someone, man, I mean, you're talking to them, that they want to serve Christ, but they're just discouraged. That, that if you need to rebuke them, because sometimes the faint-hearted need rebuke, you want to do so cautiously, carefully. You know, don't, you be careful. If someone is really just weighed down by by trying to you know, lighten the mood with a joke or something, because, because very often our, our humor can come across as dismissive or uncaring. Like, like we'd rather run from the issue than deal with it. You know, we need to be careful to acknowledge the pain because the faint-hearted can't ignore it. And bathe everything you do in compassion. Now, again, I'd say avoid trite positivity and, and, and hallmark language. You know, cards love to just give us little words of positivity as if that solves anything. No, take them to God's word. Take them to the character of God, the promises of Scripture. Rehearse foundational truths. 
So give encouragement that, need, that meets the need of the moment. So, so folks, it is so important that we learn how to encourage the faint-hearted. And then third, Paul says, that we must help the weak. Now, first of all, again, who are these people? And uh, the word weak, uh, the word weak, just in general, can refer to lots of different things. So it could refer to physical weakness, uh, mental limitations, poverty. Of course, Romans 14 uses it to talk about someone with a weak conscience. Or, Or it could just refer to general spiritual weakness. And of course, in this verse, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul doesn't tell us which one he has in mind. But, but I think if we, we look at the context and look at what he just said about unruliness and about faint-heartedness, that, that we ought to assume that he is especially thinking here of spiritual weakness. And of course, there's a lot of people in the church who are spiritually weak. I mean, they want to honor the Lord. But, but for various reasons... They are seriously disadvantaged in the pursuit of godliness. Now, maybe you have someone in the church and, who was raised in an abusive, ungodly environment. And the way they grew up really pollutes how they think and how they view the world. Now, maybe there's someone who has a long-term addiction struggle. And they hate that struggle. But, but they can't seem to escape it. Now, maybe someone has a mental disorder that that doesn't excuse sin, but it certainly makes it a whole lot more difficult for them to overcome it. And they just really have a harder time than most people managing their emotions or or, or controlling impulses or or managing pressure. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that, that, that people in this room might deal with forms of spiritual weakness. And, and you know, for me, by, by God's grace, I don't think that I've ever had to deal with any of the types of things that I just mentioned. And it could be really easy for someone like me to look at someone who is struggling with an addiction or one of these other things and think, just stop it. It's not that hard. Don't do that anymore. But, it, but, it's, but doing so is not nearly as easy for that person as it might be for you. And if we're going to care well for each other, it's essential that we recognize these challenges. Now, you may not fully understand how someone else is spiritually weak, but but you need to try, and you need to do your best to come alongside them, you know, and rather than, you know, just blasting them, supporting the weak. So so the question, then, and start to answer my own question there, is, well, what do they need? And, And these people, Paul says, need help, or they need support. Now, again, that could come in many forms. But the basic point is that when I recognize weakness, I want to come alongside that person, and I want to help carry the load, right? I mean, that's the idea of support. You know, imagine someone, they've got this huge you know, weight on their shoulders. They're struggling to carry it. They're about to fall over. If you're going to support them, you, you get under it, and you help them hold the load up. And there's lots of ways you can do that. You can do so by speaking words of encouragement, just being a friend, providing accountability, giving practical helps, showing compassion and patience, and many other things. Sometimes uh, supporting the weak means not allowing the weak to use his weakness to dismiss his sin. that's, That's very common in our culture, right? 
You know, so our culture has all sorts of diagnoses about this problem and that problem, and, and it's good for us to recognize weakness that needs support. But so often what happens in our day is that it turns into enablement or an excuse. You know, well, I'm an impulsive person, so I'm going to do impulsive things, and the world's just going to have to get over it. And we want to support the weak, but sometimes supporting them means that we come alongside them and say, by the grace of God, you can change. And we help them push through. Now, of course, you probably need to take a more gentle approach with the weak than you would with the unruly because you don't want to just blow them out. But, but through Christ, they need to understand that they can change, and by God's grace, they will change. You know, again, it just depends on the situation. You know, the point is, it, once again, that instead of making quick assumptions about people and their issues and what's wrong with them, I need to listen and I need to discern what is going on. And when I recognize weakness, I need to tailor my love to the need of the moment. That's so important. Yeah, it's, you know, I do it, we all do it. You know, we look at so-and-so and we think, man, what a failure. I mean, he does this and that and if he loved Jesus, he would change. And we never take the time to really understand the situation, the complexities of the situation, and we're just sitting off the side making up our minds about things that we don't fully comprehend. So, so take the time to understand people. You know, something else that I need to add is that all of us are weak to some extent, right? We, we all are spiritually weak. And the Christian life is too hard for any of us to do it on our own. So, so we all are weak and we all need support, which is why... Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 say, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as we've talked about, we're all stronger together. We all need support. And so all of us need to lean in on each other for that support, and we need to help support the burdens of others as well. So help the weak, and then the fourth command Paul gives is be patient with everyone. Now, first of all, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about everyone, right? Because we're all sinners, every one of us, and we all have problems, and we all do dumb stuff. Life with you, life with me, takes patience. And if you don't recognize that, then you probably need a lot of patience. We're all sinners. We all need patience. And so... What is it that, the, that, the, that we all need? We all require patience. Now, now, of course, patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And if I'm walking in the Spirit, that the Bible teaches that I will be a cushion of grace for the failures of my brothers and sisters. You know, I won't be like a cue ball. You know, if a cue ball hits another, uh, another ball, it just bounces off it. You know, bang, bang. No, I will be a cushion of grace. For the failures of my brothers and sisters, I will absorb their struggles and stay long to help them change. And that is so important because all of us, you know, patience here is so important because all of us, I think when we recognize struggles in other people, we all lean in one of two directions. You know, you either, either you might, you know, you see a problem in someone's life, you know, your, your response might be to become irritable and frustrated and get harsh. Knock it off! Or on the other hand, your response might be to just 
you know, close your eyes, cover your ears. I don't want to know what's going on. I don't want to get involved. I'm too busy. I don't want to deal with issues. I don't want to deal with drama. And we leave it alone. So you're either going to give them a piece of your mind or you're going to distance yourself from the problem and let it persist. And frankly, your impulse might change depending on the situation. You know, it might be that you're quick to get fiery with your siblings and then when you come into church, you never want to get involved in anything. But folks, love won't accept either option. Love moves towards the person with a laser-focused effort towards the good of his soul. And love stays long in the struggle because people matter. And because souls are at stake. And because, as well, there is always hope in the gospel. A child of God is never without hope. So, folks, we should be patient with all. We, we never give up on God's people. So, so let's pull all this together into four conclusions. And the first conclusion is this. Don't forget the gospel. Now, I bring this up because, again, some of you, I, I imagine that some of you throughout this entire sermon, you've been thinking about a person or a situation. And, and you've had one of two defenses that has been in your mind the whole time. A would be that this person is never going to change. So what is the use even trying? I mean, why am I going to stick my neck out and then just have it cut off? So, so we just leave it alone. Or, or the other excuse would be, Pastor, this is too hard. I can't love like this. And I can't endure the hurt and disappointment that follows this investment. I mean, if I go after this person... It might not turn out well for me. And you know, the reality is, is that if you live this verse, there is a pretty strong likelihood that you will get hurt. Came across a little quote by C.S. Lewis this week. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. And isn't that so true? If you love people and you invest in people, you will get hurt. If you love the people of this church, and you are passionate about ministry, you will get hurt. The people that, that you love the most are the people that can oftentimes hurt you the most. Yeah, and, and so because of that, unbelievers generally have no interest in living out our text. You know, they believe it's hopeless. And they believe that they can't take it. But, but we need to understand that gospel power changes everything. There is always hope for change in Christ. And if someone is saved, Jesus is going to glorify them someday. They are going to change. So, so we should never lose hope for a child of God that God can work and God can turn them around. And through Christ, you can endure the pain of loving people and investing in their lives. Now, Christ endures your stupidity every day. So, so be willing to, to invest yourself in people and endure their faults. And know that he is enough to sustain you every step. So, so the world, again, rarely tries to live this verse. And it may appear very strange to them that we do. You know, I've had unbelievers come into the church like, dude, why are you guys so, like, why, do you, why are you so involved in each other's lives? And why do you care so much? And why are, why are you bugging each other? And, you know, and that's how the unbeliever sees the Christian life and sees the church. Because they don't, they don't want deep relationships. Because they can't manage the hurt. 
But as Christians, through the power of the gospel, we can truly love one another. And Jesus said in in John 13 that when we love each other like this, the world knows that we are his disciples because we go after people with love. So don't forget the gospel. Secondly, cultivate intentional awareness of the body. And again, if you're going to discern people's hearts and needs, then you have to know them. You can't sit in here for an hour and a half a week, never talk to anyone, and live this verse, within the church at least. You must know people. You must, you know, and you'll never invest this verse. You're, you'll never live this verse if you are not investing in significant relationships and working to know and understand people. So love people. Invest time in getting to know people. Ask thoughtful questions about their life. We work to cultivate an intentional awareness of people, their needs, their burdens, their struggles, so, so that you can serve them well. And then third application is take a tailor your love to the needs of each person. And, and something I want to add here is that you know, tailoring your love to the need of each person doesn't just involve knowing that person. Sometimes it also involves knowing yourself. So am I naturally a sarcastic person? Do I tend to overstate things or understate things? Do I enjoy conflict or do I despise conflict? And those kinds of things are very important because because sometimes we think that we're doing one thing and communicating one thing and we're communicating something entirely different. So, So work to understand yourself and to be the best version of yourself. That's work. But, but people matter. People matter. So push yourself to be the best version of yourself in every situation and to serve the body well. And then finally, do hard things because eternity is at stake. You know, again, this kind of ministry is oftentimes very hard. I don't know how many times as a pastor I've picked up the phone or I've rang a doorbell and I feel like I'm sticking my neck in a guillotine. Because I'm sure that I'm about to just get ripped to shreds. And, uh, and thankfully, it rarely turns out that bad. You know, and, and usually, oftentimes, God does incredible things. I mean, sometimes, you know, you're, you know, you're nervous, like, ah, I, don't know, I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm not going to have any idea how they're going to respond. They might bite my head off. And then God brings repentance. Or God does something in the heart of an individual. And yet, while that is true, I mean, oftentimes God does great things, the reality is is that people ministry is risky. And if you let fear control you, you're not going to make much of an impact. If you wait till you know the exactly right thing to say and you know exactly how that person's going to respond, you're never going to impact anyone's life. And yet, people matter. I mean, think again about what Jude 23 says. I mean, Jude says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. You know, I mean, imagine if your child or someone you love is falling into a fire. You, you don't worry about if they're going to yell at you. You don't worry about if they're a little bit uncomfortable. You save them from the fire. It's urgent. You don't wait till you've got a good time and you know lots of extra energy and everything else in life is order is in order. I mean, you bend over backwards. You go after people. So, so yes, some of this is hard, but God is sufficient and people matter. So be courageous and do hard things. And again, as we do, 
We will love each other well, and the world will see that we are disciples of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the simple admonitions of this text. And Lord, I pray, uh, first of all, for the spiritual needs of, of people in this room. I'm sure that there are many people in this room who are weak and faint-hearted, and maybe even some that would fall in the category of unruly. And God, I pray that your spirit would work in each heart according to the individual need. And Lord, I pray for all of us that God, we would, in the strength and in the grace that you give, that we would live this verse out. That that Lord, uh, we would know people, love people, invest in relationships, and then we would give intentional, specific care. And God, I pray Uh, Lord, uh, that that we would do this well as a body, and that, Lord, in everything, we would show patience for everyone, and uh, that, Lord, we would would be full of grace and compassion. And so, God, I I pray for your work. I I pray, Lord, that we would live this text well, and, Lord, that all of us would live it well, not just a few. And so, work in our midst to do this, I pray. And God, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would bring change, that you would bring growth, that you would glorify yourself in our midst by causing us to love each other better. In Jesus' name.